0: This podcast is supported by Red Energy. Powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, Red is 100% Australian-owned and local. Phone 131 806.
1: Congratulations! Victoria's housing market has rebounded strongly this year.
0: Hammers were falling once again.
1: Buy numbers per auction
2: are actually up on last year. Rates, of course, on hold again at
0: 0.25%.
2: National house prices were still rising.
0: A man's home is his castle. And today it goes under the hammer.
2: Welcome to Under the Hammer. For Red Energy, moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. Yes, hello, and welcome to Under the Hammer for another week with Ben Reed and Claire Parks from Ian Reed Buyer and Vendor advocate Sam Hargraves here as well. It's all thanks to Red Energy. Moving is hard, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. Call Red Energy on one three one eight zero six. Ben, Claire, it's been a very, very big week uh, for the state, but also especially for real estate. Yeah, never, never a dull week in real estate, and particularly with these lockdowns. I and mean,
1: unfortunately, this week we're you know we're two steps forward, one step back, and. We felt like the momentum was in the consumer confidence was starting to pick up, but unfortunately we're having to backtrack a little bit this week.
2: Before we dive right into that and what it means for the real estate market, whether you're buying or renting or whatever your um, participation in the industry is, let's just get through the weekend results because there were still some solid results around the place.
1: Yeah, so there were 300 auctions right across Melbourne over the weekend at a clearance rate of 72%. So we compare that to the same time last year and we're actually back up to the same level of uh, auction um, numbers. And we're also seeing a clearance rate, which was even better than the same time last year. So, wow.
2: Yeah. So what does that do um, for, for you guys and for the industry? I mean, how much confidence does that give and how keen is the industry to, to push that message to say, hey, we're still open for business?
0: Yeah, we're certainly still wanting to push that. And the kind of message that it sends is that things are still happening. Things are still getting sold and there's certainly still still buyer interest out there. I mean, some of the opens that we inspected, there were still lines to get in. So the good stuff is still going well, and that's a pretty good sample size to suggest that things are looking on the up.
2: I went to a couple of opens over the weekend, and agents taking it really, really seriously. So they're there with hand sanitizer. You know, some even had the temperature check. Um, Every, you know, regulation is being followed, and every measure is being followed to make sure that everybody that's going through... um, is safe, and I'll tell you one thing. I noticed the opens are going for longer because they've got to because you can't have so many people in. So I actually got a lot more time to go through, uh, unencumbered by other people. It was it was actually uh, it was fantastic over the weekend. Well,
1: I think it's it's probably a reflection of life generally at the moment. We've got a little bit more time. The stock mm. levels aren't as um, full as they would ordinarily be Um, so agents are able to take a little bit more time through the opens they're certainly being thorough I think the industry by and large has done a fantastic job um, to be making sure that everyone's safe and sound and um, as well as protecting both the buyers and vendors
2: in the transaction so as we know um, there's suburbs that have gone into lockdown Claire Ben um, we've got new suburbs sort of coming on uh, as as late as yesterday just take us through the suburbs that, that are in lockdown at the moment
0: yeah, so they're mainly focused in the uh, northwestern pocket of, of Melbourne. Uh, we've got the likes of Brooklyn, Kingsville, Maidstone, uh, West Footscray, City of Maribyrnong, around High Point, uh, St Albans, Flemington and Kensington were two uh, that were added on just yesterday, along with North Melbourne, uh, down around Bor- Broadmeadows, Oak Park uh, and Brunswick and surrounds as well. So
2: I suppose the question for everybody is, what does that mean if you are looking either to sell or to buy and and you're trying to stay in the market, you might be partway through that process at the moment, buying in one of those suburbs, what do the lockdown restrictions mean? Okay. So for sellers, what it means is you you can no longer have your
1: property open for inspection. You can still have buyers through privately, but uh, the agent must, it just must be on a one on one basis. They must take their details and, and they can be taking them through. Any auctions now are converted to digital auctions, so there's no public auctions at all. But it does still mean that you can still sell your property. It doesn't go on hold completely,
2: but it just means that you're restricted. So, Claire, if you're a tenant in one of those places that's that's going to have some private open for inspections and you are in a house that's on lockdown, what would that mean for you?
0: Uh, I believe as a tenant, you can actually still... Uh, refuse open homes, uh, and if that is the case, then the vendor needs to accept that. the vendor and landlord need to accept that, and uh, in, which would mean that the process would need to be put on hold.
2: But, I mean, but the beautiful thing is too, and, and and what we've noticed is that agents are so good now at the virtual tour, uh, every, the, the online presence and and what you can see digitally is as good as it's ever been. So you can still get a really good idea of what the property entails. Mm. This has been. One of the
1: things that we've seen through the lockdown period, we were getting virtual tours. Um, you were having the digital auctions that were accompanying the, the um, live on site. So a lot of these factors have still carried through to our non-lockdown periods, which has been a blessing because we're now, you know, regressed
2: back into some lockdowns in some suburbs. I, I noticed a couple of people doing this as well over the weekend. I was actually at some opens looking for on behalf of somebody else and I just FaceTimed them. And went through with them. Are, are we are we seeing that more and more now? And is that something that that the, the agents are even able to do? So if 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 you know with with things how they are, if an agent's only able to go through and you're not able to attend due to lockdown and things like that, are we are we seeing agents being able to do the same thing? Just get you on Facetime and, and take you on a tour that way.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really big part of our business that's come out in this time as well is being that trusted advisor and being able to represent a client in going through a property, taking a video. uh, Because I mean, the agent is still working on behalf of the vendor and they may not look into the same sorts of things that we would like to look into, for example, on behalf of a client. So that's something that we can certainly do. And it's something that we're going to ramp up for these suburbs so that we can still help people that are ready and out there wanting to buy.
2: So what does it mean, um, Ben, for residents of a restricted suburb, can they attend an open in another suburb? So if they're in a lockdown suburb, uh, say they're in uh, somewhere, whether it be Flemington, and they want to go and have a look at a place in Elwood, is that allowed? Yeah. So that's the other side of the coin is that the,
1: the buyers within these suburbs can no longer attend open for inspections. They are still allowed to go out and, and uh, attend inspections by private appointment, whether they be a tenant or a buyer, um, but you can no longer attend an open for inspection. Um, and it's it's incumbent on the, the resident to be advising the agent that uh, they are part of the lockdown suburbs um, because agents you know will be taking names and numbers, but they, you know they can't be relied upon to necessarily be knocking everyone back at opens.
2: Yeah, I was, I was going to ask that as well. I mean, it's a big ask for agents. I mean, they're... If you've got, say, 10 people lining up, obviously social distancing, to go through a property, they can't be running full sort of uh, background checks on everyone when they come in to say that, do you really live in the suburb? You've said so. If I'm an agent listening at the moment concerned that, well, what's the, fall, what's the blowback on me if someone attends that's from a, a suburb that's in lockdown, where's their responsibility stop and start?
0: well it's their agent is just there to do the best amount of due diligence as possible mm. within a reasonable time frame and look i mean it's their role to just monitor and ask the right questions and then from there, it's as again taking names and numbers. If something is to come back, well, they've got all the details and data there.
1: Yeah, so do do expect that at open for inspections. Agents will be asking to see your license, photo yeah, ID, sure. um, and and they are within their rights. In fact, they're they're obligated to knock you back from attending the open for inspection if you are part of the lockdown suburbs.
2: Yeah, and I think they'll do everything that they can to do. But I, I remember last week I, I heard a report straight away that Vic Roads on the day that the lockdowns were announced, the day after Vic Roads. Had a thirty-three percent increase in people trying to change their address. Mm. So, people are going to go to the, as far the extreme lengths as they possibly can if they're going to get. If someone wants to get around this, they'll get around it. And so, what we're sort of saying here is that the agents will do everything they can, but there is a lot. There is to a point, and we can't be expecting them to be responsible for people who are going out of their way to be deceptive. Well, I mean, footy is a great
1: example of this, where we knew that we were coming into these further lockdowns, and they gave. Um, everyone about a 48-hour notice period where if you're within those suburbs, um, you have a chance to get out and go into an Airbnb or um, some short-term accommodation um, to allow you the flexibility that's um, you know, not allowed to people within the lockdown areas.
2: Uh, let's move on to uh, Vendor Advocacy, guys. The uh, Fatal Real Estate Traps Exposed. This is the free booklet that's available to download uh, via your website at Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. What are we finding? Well, we go through 14
1: traps in, in real estate and last week we talked about um, three, the price being too high, setting your price too high, the opposite of that, setting it too low or maybe you're allowing your property to sit on the
2: market for too long. So we've got a few more that we'll go through today. Well, let's start with number one, uh, this week's traps. Uh, trap number one, falling for the highest price agent. It's pretty common
1: within the industry, Sam. I know that you spent a bit of time in, in real estate as well. And, I did. Yeah. And uh, look, it's it's the oldest trick in the book as far as agents are concerned. And unfortunately, when, when an agent's trying to get business, they know that they'll be judged on what they think the property's worth and potentially what their fees cost. And no agent wants to be the, the lowest price in terms of an estimate, because often the agent who gives the lowest price is uh, not a good thing of getting the business. So generally, we will find that Agents somewhat will gild the lily a little bit, um, and you know, but if you hear an agent that's telling you your property's worth hundred dollars to $150,000 more than what the rest of the agents are saying the property's worth, you know, more often than not, it's, it, it's too good to be true. So make sure that you're setting your expectations based on comparable sales, um, because just because an agent tells you a high price does not necessarily mean that they can achieve that for you.
2: And that's a great point, isn't it? It's all well and good to trust, and and we always should. Uh, More often than not, most of the agents are are doing the right thing. But, Claire, what are the sort of buzzwords that people and that vendors or potential vendors should be looking for when they are getting um, these appraisals done by the agent? What are the words that they should be looking for? What are the things that you want your agent to be saying to you uh, in terms of when they're delivering their belief in what your property's worth? And why they think it's worth that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the most important thing, as Ben said, is those comparable sales. Well, is there data to back up a particular range that they're putting forward? Are those sales actually comparable? Are they comparable in location, uh, in size, in orientation, in specs, whether in bedrooms and things like that, Uh, and particularly in condition as well? You know, a fully renovated home is clearly going to fare better in the market than something that is is unrenovated. So- is it truly something that is comparable to your place? Um, and then look at what that's sold for and, and the time frame, and, and go from there. So that's important.
2: For, for both of you, when you're looking at a property and you've got two there, they're in the same suburb. They're pretty much reason, but both in uh, pretty identical nick um they both have a lot of the same features one might be three bedroom one might be two bedroom i've always been curious where the figure comes from for what's the extra bedroom worth and and what you should be guided by in that space i looked at a couple over the weekend of of varying you know one bed two bed and for some a a second bedroom was worth a lot and for others it wasn't worth as much um where's the where should you be looking to for what's the guidelines there
0: Oh
1: gosh! I mean, every property and situation is different. Mm. Yeah, and and the jump from a, a one bed to a two bed is certainly going to be much more significant than a, a, f-, a four bedder to a five bedder, for example. Yep. Um. So it, it just depends also on the balance of the living space, the the um, land value uh, value of the asset as well. So um, there's a few factors that would come into that because you don't often see. A two bedroom home, for example, that has multiple living spaces and and is on a really big um, block. so mm. um, yeah, I don't know whether it would be able to give you a, a definite you it know just calculation another
0: element as well. you know it, it could bring another level of purchaser in to a three bedroom that wouldn't consider the two bedroom. so it could simply be just increasing your uh, mm. com- um, competition. And that can then change your price as well
2: and, and a couple of these were in the same apartment block as well, and I was just surprised by the 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 uh, the size of the jump from the two bed, which uh, again layouts very similar it 's just the addition of that third bedroom. Similar size living space, everything else pretty identical. It's just a difference between a two bed and a three bed. I was surprised in a couple of the places just how big the jump was mm. in, in in an apartment situation. Uh, in those scenarios, um, and, and do you do we see that a lot? Is there do we think it's pretty standard across the board, or are some people far overestimating that value of the the third bedroom, uh, or is it more the value from one to two bedrooms where you see the biggest increase? Yeah, if we're talking apartments, then mm.
1: the as I said before, that the jump from a one bed to a two bed would be more significant than a two bed to a three bed. But it depends on the size of the apartment and whether the, a lot of the three bedders tend to be on the upper level. So then there's an an additional element of views or Mm. um, space or orientation. So, um, yeah, it's probably a question that can't be answered with
2: a, a definitive response. And, and that's obviously because of the variations in the properties we're looking at. But if you were someone looking at, at, at a property like that, you should feel confident though, shouldn't you, to, just, to be able to get the agent to, to validate that, to say, well, explain that mm. to me. Do, do you, are you finding that the buyers and vendors are confident asking the right questions? And I suppose for you guys, is that something you'd be encouraging them to always do, to, to never be, to shy away from asking those questions, to have it explained to them and justified?
1: Yeah, well, as vendors advocates, when we we always ask the agent what their estimate of market value is, and then mm. then we ask for the three to four most comparable sales and other properties that are on the market currently that justify their opinion of value. So it all needs to be supported by um, actual
2: sales and, and um, for sale evidence. Let's go to trap two, not getting a certified property valuation. Uh, you guys would see this time and time again, I'd think.
1: Yeah, so... Part of that process to make sure that we are as thorough as possible we 're not just relying on what the agents are telling us they believe the property to be worth as we know agents you know can be influenced or are influenced by the fact that they 're trying to get the business sometimes they can be on the high side because they don 't want to um, you know, they 're fearful that they might not get it if they don 't tell them a particular price but on the other side of things too, they might feel like they 're a pretty good thing of getting the business and they don 't want to overcook it so they 're keeping the expectations a little bit lower so Having someone independent that doesn't care whether your property is worth $800,000, a million dollars or 1.2, they're they're there to give you a really comprehensive um, understanding and assessment of what the property's true value is. Making sure you've got something like that to then base your expectations on is an important part of uh,
2: making sure that it's all set up right. And I would suggest that it's the more information you can get, the, the more comfortable you'd feel with the decision you're about to make. I mean, that's what we get told from a very young age. that if you're going to make an informed decision, have as much information as, as possible, Claire.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely.
2: So, with, so that's trap number two, not getting a certified property valuation. Where do you send people? Where, where do people, because again, it's, for a lot of people, this is their first experience, whether it be buying or selling, where do, you, where do they find these services? So we would typically organise that for them um, Mm. and
1: there's different companies that do it. Hey, property consultants, Optian, uh, just to name a couple here in Victoria. Um, But remember that this is a a legal document, something that would need to stand up in in court, you know, should it need to. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, as I said, an important part of making sure they've got all the right advice and they're not just relying on an agent's
2: opinion. Uh, Let's move to trap number three, Claire, the wrong commission structure.
0: Well, we often hear the statement that the cheapest agent is not always the best agent, and I think that's really important in this particular trap. Uh, we have a number of agents through the property, all of which give us a commission structure, and there's a particular way that we like to structure things that we uh, have tried and tested, and I'll get Ben to explain that further.
1: So I guess the first thing, one of the so the buzzwords over the last couple of years has been, you know, fixed, fixed fee, you know, sell for a fixed fee. And, um, I mean, purple bricks are a pretty good example of, of that not working. Um, and you know, so be very, um, wary of, of a fixed fee selling agent. If an agent is going to throw in their advertising and, um, do it all for $6,000 and it's, and, and they get that regardless of whether they sell it for 700 or whether they sell it for 750, What's their motivation to get you the highest and best price? And in mm. fact, a lot of these, you know, fixed fee selling methods uh, or structures, uh, the agent actually got paid a good portion of that fee right from the outset. So they, they had even less motivation to get the property sold, let alone for the highest and best price. So that's the first thing: a fixed fixed fee selling structure um, fee we would not recommend. Most agents work on a on a commission basis. Um, but even then, just working on a on a flat fixed percentage, we believe that a better result is achieved by having an incentive based commission structure. So what that might look like, instead of it being a um, a fixed percentage of two percent, make the agent work to get their two percent. Mm. Let let's reduce that fee down to one point seven five percent or one point eight percent. If we then are looking at a million dollar sale, for example, you're then knocking off two thousand dollars off the commission from the outset. But the balance to that is then incentivize them to get a really good result. So instead mm. of it being 2%, offer them 1.8, but then give them 10% of anything over a million dollars. So essentially what that makes them do is that they then need to sell your property for $20,000 more in order to get back up to their flat rate of commission. And anything above that, they're on a really powerful incentive to not just sell it for your minimum price, but to exceed your expectations.
2: I'd never even thought of that before. I think that's a, a fantastic idea, isn't it? And we, we see it in sports all the time. We see incentive-based contracts for athletes, and uh, and we've seen how successful they can be. But just explain that again, because I think there's a, there's a really... It's a really clear, but it's important to know exactly what you're saying there about drop their commission. Say it's a million dollar property, one point eight. But then, if they do get anything over that, you'll give them not ten percent of the whole sale, no, but just ten percent of whatever they get over the benchmark, just the bit at the top. So yeah. if if they sell it for then an, an additional
1: thirty thousand dollars, they then get an, an additional three thousand dollars
2: in the commission. So and what kind of success are you seeing with this? I mean, do, do the agents that do it, how do they feel uh, about it? I mean, cause that would scare off maybe some purchases or um, that would scare off maybe some, um, some sellers in a way because they're thinking, Oh geez, I'm going to have to pay so much. But when you've seen that structure put in place, how successful has it been? Yeah. So
1: we've analyzed thousands of, of transactions done with our company and this strategy has proven to get a result that, is, that achieves a sale price over 2% higher than that that are on fixed or, or flat rates of commission. So on an $800,000 sale, that's the equivalent of about $19,000. So um, it's important that you do set the structure right, that you're not um, setting it too low so that they're getting this you know, larger you know, fee for no additional mm. work. But it, um, additionally, you don't want to set it too high so that it's not achievable. And that you, Because I can give you examples of you know working in real estate where you've got an agent that has got an offer for the vendor. The vendor says, look, oh, look we'd really love to try and get a little bit more. But um, if that's the best that we can do, then we're prepared to sell. Vendor's happy, buyer's happy. Guess what happens? Transaction you know, is concluded and, and the agent normally doesn't go too much further. But if they're on a 10% 15% incentive and they mm. know that this buyer's just gone and bid for $50,000 higher than um the offer in which they've put in on another property before they're going to go back to the well um what gets rewarded gets done and you know and whether that morally you know be be questioned it's it's just human nature that um you know they're salespeople, and they will work harder to to earn some more money.
2: Absolutely. So let's well let's address that elephant in the room then, from the position of the buyer. First and foremost, though, from the vendor, that would fill me with a heap of confidence to know that um, this person we've got the price set here. But I tell you what, if they get over that, then they're going to get uh, there's a really uh, juicy carrot being dangled for for the for the uh, to to sell that property. So that gives me a lot of confidence as a vendor, and I think if you're the real estate agent too, uh, you know that your your salespeople are going to work mm. that extra bit harder, which is fantastic. So there's a win-win there. Um, but if, but if you're the one buying the property and you're listening to this right now and you're going, well, hang on a minute, you, you shouldn't be too alarmed, should you? Because there you're under no obligation no. as the buyer. If you don't want to go higher, you don't have to. No, and and
1: let's not forget that the agent is working for the vendor. Mm. They're there to get the best and highest and best price for their client who is the vendor. So I think being aligned um, in your goals, and that is to achieve the highest and best price, not just the minimum figure that the agent can achieve, um, is proven to, to get a better result for everyone.
2: So Claire, you do more with the buyers as a buyer's advocate. So if you knew that that real estate agent had that structure with that vendor and you've got your buyer there saying well, what what do do I do here? I mean, they're coming back wanting more, they're coming back wanting more. You'd obviously be the the calming influence for your buyer and what would your advice be?
0: For sure. So with that, leading up to putting an offer in, we've asked all of the questions Mm. that we need to, to try and put our client in the best position possible. Um, So it's about coming back to that and they can always come back and ask for more, but it's also about, you know, balancing out the terms and the fine line of, well, This is our highest and best and making that clear Mm. uh, so that the agent does not keep coming back and and asking. I mean, they can push, but it's about standing firm and having done all the, um, uh, get all the information before that to make sure we're in the best spot.
2: So what are some of the mistakes that you've seen uh, buyers make in these situations?
0: So uh, we just wanted to highlight a couple of the, or a few of the main ones and uh, something that we have seen a lot of recently and we think is really a appropriate to chat about is the lack of planning Mm. going into making the property purchase decision. So uh, for example, we always encourage, or the beginning of our process is the client coming in and speaking with us and we get clear on a brief. Now what's involved in that brief is understanding what the client wants out of the property now, but also taking some time to look into the future and what that might look like. So in a five or 10 year odd period, so, uh, for example, we've seen in the past, for example, perhaps a young couple that buy an apartment, and in 12 months they're engaged or getting married, and then a couple of years later they've they've outgrown that because they've got one or, or more kids, and that's the kind of thing we'd like to avoid if possible.
2: So that's a great question, isn't it? Because your situation now and your situation in three years' time, so uh, so for example can be very, very different. Well, look at the year we're going through at the moment. (laughs) Your situation in three days' time might be uh, very different. So that's a really important thing to sit them down and say, okay, here's your current situation, but what are you hoping your future situation is and is that property still going to be suitable for you in that time?
0: Yeah, I mean, it costs money to transact real estate and that's really important to keep in mind that every time you buy and sell, there are costs associated. Mm. So let's factor those in and try and get it right from the outset.
2: Because we tend to forget that, don't we? That that there are there is an expense to buying, and there's well, obviously there's an expense to buying, but it's not just the price of the property. There's your legal fees and uh, and and all that goes with it, but but selling as well. There's expenses around that too. Yeah. So I mean, they need to be thinking about. Well, you know,
1: in in three years' time, as a couple. If we're going to have kids, you know, we're we going to be on dual incomes. Are we going to be able to afford it? Mm. Um, is the space going to be right? Or if we do move move on from here and um, to something larger, can we afford to hold on to it? You know, so all of these types of questions that we'd pose get to to thinking about: well, is this the right property, not only for us now, but into the future?
2: The mistake I made when I bought my first property was I had X amount of money and I bought a property for that amount of money, and then got in there and went, "Oh, I've got some work to do." Mm. So the, the planning is really, really important, isn't it? You, you might know that that's my budget, but what does that property or, or properties that you look at, are you look, Are you going to be able to buy something that needs no work? Because if not, what do you leave in your kick, in the reserve? So to have someone to go through that process with, I think obviously that's really, really important. The planning is, is just crucial to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row.
0: Yeah, it's really important and it's something that we – Try to get right at the outset to make the rest of the process a lot more smooth for our clients. Uh,
2: what's the second biggest mistake that you're seeing uh, people make in the, the purchasing of a property? I think rushing into a decision.
1: Um, you know, buying property is a really emotional um, transaction, mm. and whether it be for investment or for home buyers, we do find that a, a lot of buyers. Um, are rushing into their choice whether they beat a downsize and they go down the beach and they spend the weekend there and they see something fantastic and they get online and they're searching and then they go and have a look at one and then they're they're committed and they you know they bought something within a month if they just take a step back assess it look at what's available in the marketplace is this property at this price the right decision for you and is it the best um, buy that you can make and and you know there's there's no lack of um, you know, investor articles and next boom suburb and those types of things that happen that uh, on a whim, you know, people, you know, think that uh, seddon's the next thing and, you know, and they're all, all of a sudden they're off buying an investment property. So um, don't rush into it, um, be calculated, have a look at a few properties, um, do your research, have a better understanding um, and make sure you're not making a rush decision.
2: Yeah, it's it. And I'll speak from personal experience again. Um, I certainly didn't do my research properly when I bought, and I was in the industry. So at the time I was working in commercial real estate, but I bought my property. I was just keen to get in, keen to get it done. I looked at a place and thought, oh, I'll be able to subdivide this. I'll be able to do this, this, and this. And that was all well and good. But one thing I didn't go and check was with uh, the city council that there was a caveat, mm. over the, which meant I couldn't do the subdivision I wanted. Mm. And when I found that out, it was, it was too late. So the research is is absolutely crucial. And, I think I was telling you guys before we started today that my parents have used buyer's advocates before and where they thought they were going to go and where they ended up was very, very different because of the advice and then the research that was done to sort of show them, no, 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 this is where you're better off. Given what you've told us, you're actually better here with this. So um, from firsthand experience, I can tell you that I know exactly how important that is. Um, due diligence, Claire.
0: This is a really important one as well. So, and this means due diligence on the property in all facets. So... Inspecting the property, knowing what you're buying, checking that appliances work, checking that if it's advertised with two car spaces, that there are two car spaces physically (laughs) there. Uh, And then as well, looking into the contract. So that's something that we do a lot of and every single um, property we look at, we look at the section 32, which is really important in looking at the title, the boundaries of each title. Mm. So if it says it's 10 by 30, is it 10 by 30 metres um, are there any easements on the block? Uh, if there are, understanding what they are, um, who they belong, who they belong to, and whether or not they're in use, and most importantly, is there anything built on them that should not be there? So, not easements aren't all bad. It's just about mm. understanding that they're there and working around them. Uh, and it's also important that if works have been done to the property, that the right permits and things have mm. been. Uh, that process has been taken into consideration and all the documents are in the contract as well.
2: And even simple ones too. I'm amazed at how many people that I've spoken to that have bought plastic. I said, oh yeah, who'd you use for your building inspection? And they just look at me blankly. It's crucial to, mm. to make sure you're getting, you know, the building, the pest. As we've said a few times, you can never have too much information. It's the biggest purchase you'll ever make.
1: Yeah. And- Like what you were saying before, Sam, with relation to um, the development of of sorts, you know, Mm. an easement as Claire alluded to before, you get an easement in the wrong spot that goes right through the middle of the block and and you're certainly not going to be able to build something on it Or, or you're going to have to go to council and go through the process of trying to remove it or get it moved. Um, Which so, can be really expensive. Oh, very expensive. Yeah, very expensive. So then it just becomes cost prohibitive mm. and, it's the, and it's the wrong property for your desired outcome and to do the development. Or it could be um, it's got a heritage overlay over it mm. um, or even a single dwelling covenant. So all of these types of things that... Um, as layman's, if you're, if you're not doing this every day, you might overlook something like that. So it's important that you're getting the right advice, not just from the agent, um, but you're seeking legal advice or um, independent advice from an expert.
2: Yeah. And don't underestimate the, the city council, believe me. Um, you know, when you're looking at the, mine was a, a simple case of, well, yep, you could I could have subdivided, but I couldn't get access where I thought I could have got access because what was a road actually stopped before my property and we would have had to extend the road. I would have had to pay for that road to be extended so mm-hmm. you talk about cost prohibitive that's exactly why I ended up selling that property I had the all the all the plans in the world and all the great ideas but I didn't do my homework and and it cost me yeah um let's finish off on uh, one that I think a lot of people uh, a mistake a lot of people make and that's uh, relying on an agent's quote solely we've spoken about this a bit over the podcast in mm. terms of quoting and um, and also just
1: relying on the agent's opinions. It can happen on the low side, which is probably the, um, the most common one that buyers get a little bit annoyed at. They set themselves up for auction and it's, you know, quoted at a level that they're setting themselves towards the top end of that and it flies right past it. Um, sometimes if you were to look at the comparable sales thoroughly, um, that you could have seen that coming Other times, it's, it's just unavoidable where there's great competition and, and things just really kick off and go you know, far beyond everyone's expect- expectations, um, but at the same time, it, fixed price, um, private selling, um, not every property that, that is priced um, is priced conservatively. Some of them are overpriced. So it's mm. important um, that you're, you're making sure that, again, you're doing your research and have an understanding as to what other properties have sold for and you're not
2: just um, being guided by um, what you're seeing online. Because, I mean, worst case scenario, Claire, you would have seen for people that they've taken the advice of the agent and then uh, they've bought the property, then they've gone to finalise their finance only for the bank to say, no, it's not worth that and we're not giving you that. Um, and then you're, you're sort of back to square one and you've gone through all that process. You've probably paid for your, might have paid for your building and your pest and all that kind of stuff and then you're out of pocket.
0: Yeah, for sure. So you want to make sure that when you are buying something privately, because this is most often when we will see that the banks will not accept a particular price, make sure that you've done your research, but also make sure that you've got the right condition in your contract, which is subject to finance. And then if the bank doesn't approve it, you actually haven't lost anything. So that's really important to protect yourself.
2: Beautifully done, guys. We've covered a, a whole lot of territory here, and it's important. And we'll reiterate what we spoke about off the top as well. That uh, at the moment, with suburbs in lockdown, and you can all find the, those lists on every on the Victorian government website. Uh, if you've got any questions at all about where you can go, what you can do, um, speak to your agent, or more importantly, speak to your your buyer or vendor advocate. Uh, hopefully, you're using Ian Reed buyer and vendor advocates. Um, ben, Claire, it's a really interesting time in the world of real estate. And we're lucky that we've got. Uh, you know, you guys to be able to walk us through it and explain it to us. Um, and if anyone's got any questions about what they should and shouldn't be doing, where can they find you guys? Give us a call, nine four three zero double zero double zero, or you can head to the website,
1: um, or you can catch either of us, Claire at ianreid.com.au or Ben at ianreid.com.au.
2: Uh, you've been listening to Under the Hammer with Ben Reed and Claire Parks from Ian Reed Buyer and Vendor Advocates. If you're moving house, you can call local energy retailer Red Energy. We do it all thanks to Red Energy. Moving is hard, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. Call Red Energy on 131 806. Ben and Claire from Ian Reed Buyer and Vendor Advocates. We'll speak to you again next week. Thanks. thanks. This has been Under the Hammer. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer for Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy.
1: If you enjoyed Under the Hammer, then check out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle Series. For the foodie, enjoy Tuesday with Ash Pollard.
2: Really, the people around here truly lived farm to table, and so that's kind of how I've been cooking, and I know it's trendy now, but it was necessity back then.
1: Moving house? Call local energy retailer Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer, part of Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series, available on your favourite podcast platform and the SE yeah